All right, well, we are already at the second Sunday of the new year, so how many people have broken a New Year's resolution already? Anybody? All right, we got some honest people in my family. Good, all right. My family, okay, we are the losers. Way to go. Um, Well, you know, this is the time of year where we do make resolutions often. We think about that a lot as a culture. And I think what we're doing when we make these resolutions, when the new year rolls around, whether we explicitly make a resolution or not, we, we have these thoughts like, we want the good life. We, we want the good life. Like, we look back on the year before, and we see there's some good, there's some bad, and we want, we want it to be better. Right? We want life to be good. And so we make these resolutions, and think, if I just do this thing, if I just get this straightened out, then I will achieve in 2015 the good life. Uh, now, the, the resolutions that we make are based on what particular assumptions we have about what makes the good life. So if you think that the good life is a life with uh, maybe losing some weight or gaining some muscle or getting a certain body type, then you'll make resolutions that, that towards that end, you're going to join the gym or cut out sugary drinks or whatever it is. Um, or if you think that the good life is having a certain amount of money, then you make resolutions about being more successful at work or getting your spending under control. If you think the good life is being healthy and having happy kids and a strong marriage, then you'll make resolutions along those lines to try to achieve those goals. So every year the new year rolls around and we have all these assumptions that drive our behaviors, assumptions about what the good life is. And we spend a lot of energy trying to achieve those goals, I think rarely asking, do I even know that this is the good life? This thing that I'm pursuing that I think will bring blessing and make me happy there, will it work? How do we know what the good life is? Uh, well, in the Bible, there's lots of places, really, that explain for us what the good life is. One of those places that's loud and clear is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew chapter 5. And here in the opening of the Sermon on the Mount that we'll look at today, we see Jesus laying out for us and saying, this is the good life. This is what it is. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 5. I think if you're using the Black Pew Bibles, it's around page 800 or 810. In these first 12 verses today, uh, we're going to see what Jesus says. You'll probably notice in your Bibles a little header that says the Beatitudes. Uh, That word is a Latin word for blessing. It's just a Latin word for for the word blessing. And it's called that because, as you notice as we read through this, Jesus just keeps saying over and over and over, blessed are these people, blessed are these people, blessed are these people. What he's saying essentially is that this is the good life. He's saying that God has a life of unsurpassed blessing that is waiting for those who will follow Jesus. Let's read these verses together, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, and then I'll do my best to explain them. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit." For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think in order to understand these verses this morning, we need to answer three questions. And the three questions are, first, how many blessings are there? And secondly, what is the blessing? And thirdly, who gets it? So how many blessings? What are the blessings? Or what is the blessing? And who gets it? Uh, so the first question, I think, what, why do we need to ask that question, Dan? How many blessings are there? Um, just, just look at it. Just count it up, right? You see it saying over and over, blessed are the so-and-so, blessed are the so-and-so. And if you count them up in verses 3 through uh, 11, you see he says nine times, blessed are you. And so you could say, well, that's, that's the answer, right? Or, or some people argue and say, well, no, really, that last one in verse 11 is just an expansion of verse 10, so there's eight. And in some sense, okay, there's the answer. That's the number of blessings. But that's not really what I'm wondering. I'm, I'm wondering, how are these blessings related? That is, what is Jesus really offering to us? Is he listing eight separate blessings for eight different types of people? As in, there are some people who get the kingdom of heaven. Then there are some other people who see God. And there's some other people who are called sons of God. And there's another group that inherits the earth. Is he listing eight different groups with eight different blessings? So you can kind of go a la carte and say, well, I want that blessing, and so I'm going to do this thing. Or is he presenting a complete package of blessings that all hang together, is it one blessing with eight facets? And I think if you really look at the structure of the blessings, it becomes obvious it really is just one blessing with multiple facets. There's just one. The biggest tip-off, I think, is the the first and the last one. So in verse 3 and in verse 10, they're exactly the same blessing. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's like these are bookends, wrapping up the whole thing in one package. He's saying, this is one unit. You can also see this in all the interconnection that there are between the blessings. It seems like there's a logical sequence as you flow through them. You know, first you recognize that you're poor in spirit, and then you mourn over your sin, and then you're humbled and meek, and you long for righteousness. Then having believed the gospel, you... Um, You show mercy to others, you have a pure heart, you try to make peace, and in the end you get persecuted for it. So there seems to be a flow, a logical connection there. Also the two halves, you can split into two halves and you see how it mirrors one another. So in the first half, like in verse 3, those who are poor in spirit, it leads naturally to verse 7, showing mercy to others. Then in verse 4, if you mourn over sin, then you are purifying your heart, verse 8. If you're meek, you try to make peace. If you long for righteousness, you often end up getting persecuted for righteousness. So all these things just seem to shout, there's not eight separate blessings. There's one blessing that hangs together. Uh, I I thought of it this week as like one of those poems that, you know, kindergartners or first graders will make their moms on Mother's Day. You know, those acrostic poems where you write down M-O-T-H-E-R. And then M is for magnificent, and O is for outstanding, and T is terrific, and so on. Okay, it's, it's one, li- it's a list of multiple facets, but it's one mother. Right, you're talking about one person, one, one category, one, one thing. And I think that's what we've got here. Jesus is laying out for us in sort of like an acrostic poem, saying this is what it looks like. First of all, to be a disciple. So it's like on the left-hand side, he's spelling out disciple. Disciple, poor in spirit, meek 
uh, you know, peacemaker. And on the right-hand side, he's spelling out blessing. You, know, you get the kingdom of heaven. You get to see God. You get to be sons of God. But in both cases, he's describing one kind of person and one kind of blessing. They're connected. So as we approach this list, we need to bear this in mind. Jesus is not presenting for us a smorgasbord of options. He's not saying, if you want mercy, then you need to be merciful. But if you want to see God, then you need to be pure in heart. That's not what he's doing. He's saying there's one whole group of blessing that's available to one type of person. And if you want that blessing, then you need to be that person. Now that's why we have to ask these other two questions then. What is the blessing, and who gets it? What is the blessing? Now, literally, we could spend months going through each one of these line by line and really nail it down. And if you've got questions, if, if you're not satisfied with the level of depth that I go in here, if you've got questions, please write your questions down, text them in, ask these questions. We'll go deeper on any one of these that you want to. But for today, I want to give you the overview. What is the blessing? If I had to summarize what all these eight things are all saying, it's that the blessing that Jesus offers is a right relationship with God. The blessing he offers is a right relationship with God. That's the one blessing that has these eight different aspects. So let's look at these verses 3 through um, 10 or 11 and, and, and focus on the second half. Focus on the second half of each of those verses to see what the blessings are. Uh, first of all, in verse 3 and in verse 10, these bookends, he says, part of the blessing is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we remember from last week, we talked about the kingdom a little bit. And, and this, this statement here, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, doesn't necessarily mean, he's not talking about the fact that you will go to heaven when you die. Certainly part of it. When he says the kingdom of heaven, he's not primarily talking about, about heaven. You know, heaven here is, you know, in other uh, gospels, it's called the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of Jesus. It's, it's, the, it's the being under the reign and the rule and authority of Jesus. So this first blessing they're offering here is the blessing of being in God's kingdom, having Jesus be your king, which may not sound like a big deal until you remember your other option is Satan. So you can either be in the kingdom of Satan or you can be in the kingdom of Jesus. Colossians 1, uh, verses 12 and 14 talks about this. Colossians 1, 12. There Paul writes, the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It says God has transferred us from the domain of darkness, from the kingdom of Satan, and he's put us in the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's the first part of the blessing that's offered by Jesus. You can get transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus to go from being a rebel against God to being a subject, a loved subject. What he's offering here is a right relationship with God. And the rest of the blessings here of the list flesh out what that means. We'll go through them quickly. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Jesus is saying you'll be comforted. Part of the blessing is that you get comfort. So all the pain, all the sorrow, the suffering that we have ever felt and will ever feel, you will receive comfort for that. He's promising eternal life. He's promising that death is not the end, that there will be a time 
when God will wipe away every tear and your sorrow will be turned to joy. In verse 5, he expands that promise. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So you don't just get eternal life. You know, we're not just talking, like so many people think, about you know, a disembodied existence floating on some clouds in heaven, strumming harps, which I don't know how you do if you don't have a body, but somehow we, we have that. Where, where this is what heaven is, and it's boring. But Jesus says, no, you're going to inherit the earth. Part of the blessing is that when Jesus returns, all his people will receive new bodies. The dead will rise like Jesus did. Those who are alive will be transformed in an instant. And these new bodies will be like Jesus, like superhuman bodies, and will live in a new world that's created afresh, a, a, a new creation, new heaven, new earth, no more sin, no more sadness, no more weeds. And we're going to live in this world, we're going to play in this world, we're going to explore in this world. It's going to be awesome. And that's part of the blessing. Jesus says you'll inherit the whole earth. Verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Many of us are not satisfied. I'm not satisfied right now. I mean, we look at the world. If you dare to look at the news, you see it's an evil, evil place. We don't generally like our leaders. Um, We don't like what we see about what's going on in the world. We hunger and thirst for a world that is good that is righteous. I think in addition to that, we're not satisfied with ourselves. We all want to be better people, at least for my family. We tried for like a week and we failed. So, you know, we we all want to be better people. We want to change, we want to be righteous, but we keep falling short. And and what Jesus says here is the blessing that's promised to you is, is there's a day coming when Jesus will return and he's going to destroy all the evil in the world and all the evil in our hearts. And we will know perfect righteousness and we will finally be satisfied. In verse 8, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Or sorry, verse 7. Verse 7, he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. These blessings Jesus offers, they come by grace. He says, we're not going to get what we deserve. I know what I deserve. It's not pretty. He says, you're not going to get what you deserve. I'm offering you mercy. God is not counting your sins against you. Verse 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, that's something that's just unheard of since the Garden of Eden. We were created for a perfect face-to-face relationship with God, but we lost it after that first sin. There's glimpses of it throughout the Old Testament with exceptional people like Moses. He gets... You know, a, a glimpse of the, the backside glory of God, but, but nobody sees God face to face. Those experiences of even, you know, Isaiah or Moses in the Old Testament, they're nothing compared to what's promised here. In fact, John, one of Jesus' disciples, picks up on this and expands it in 1 John 3 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Okay. That's, this, this is one of those blessings where like, if it's not blowing your mind, you haven't thought about it. He says, we will become like him. When Jesus appears, we'll become like him because we shall see him as he is. We will see God. We will see the unseeable. We will see the infinite creator of the universe, the most glorious, 
beautiful thing that exists and will we like him? I mean, do, you get, do you get excited, even just a little bit excited about the idea of maybe meeting a famous person? Like, would you get excited about meeting the president or maybe Stephen Hawking or Taylor Swift, that's more your, your boat? You get excited about that? It'd be pretty cool. Okay, how much more exciting to see God? Are you excited about going on vacations where you see amazing things like the Grand Canyon or Mount Rainier or the, the you know, Canadian Rockies? How much more beautiful and awe-inspiring and amazing to see God. That's what's promised to those who are in God's kingdom. You'll see God. Verse 9. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers. No, sorry, yeah. For they should be called sons of God. We call sons and daughters of God. What we have here is the complete healing of the relationship with God. No longer enemies of Him, no longer under His wrath, no longer facing His just punishment for our sins. But now to be called adopted sons and daughters of the King. Not just in the kingdom, not just a slave or a hired hand. Like you're in the kingdom, you can take care of the horses. He's like, we're in the kingdom as sons and daughters. We're princes and princes in God's kingdom. And everything that belongs to the chief prince, Jesus, belongs to us. This is the blessing. We could go a lot more in depth. If there's one of those that you think, I would like to know more about that, ask a question about it. We'll we'll write that up this week. But what I want you to see right now is that this is the good life. This is what we're longing for. This is what Jesus offers us, life in a right relationship with God, to be adopted into his family, to see God face to face, to receive mercy and comfort and deep soul satisfaction, to get the whole universe thrown in as well. That's a blessing that I want. Do you want that blessing? You can say it, yeah. You want that blessing? I want that blessing, okay? So how do we get that blessing? This is what Jesus offers, tremendous blessing. The key question then is, who gets it? How do I know that I'm going to see God? How do I know I get to inherit the earth? How do I know I get mercy? To answer that, I want to take the same approach. Okay? Just like there's one blessing with eight facets, there's one type of person who gets the blessing described eight different ways. Let's look at them all together, and I'm going to try to summarize. Here's my summary, just up front. Who's the one who gets the blessing? It's the one who's born again. The one who's born again. If you're following along, you'd say, where did you see that, Dan? Those words are not in my passage. That's correct. They're not, they're not there. I'm bringing in another passage because there's another passage that really informs what's going on here. It's in John chapter 3. So you got your Bibles, please go ahead and turn there. Uh, so it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So just a few books over to your right. John chapter 3. It's this fascinating encounter Jesus has with a Pharisee. It's a guy named Nicodemus. Now, I don't know what happened. Maybe Nicodemus heard the Sermon on the Mount, or he heard some of the teaching of Jesus where he really lays into the Pharisees and says, you guys don't get it. And so Nicodemus, admittedly, under the cover of darkness, goes to visit Jesus and to ask him to clarify some of the things that he has been teaching. In John chapter 3, we read about this visit. So John 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Don't you notice? They're talking about the same thing that we're looking at in Matthew 5. They're talking about how do you get in the kingdom? How do you get these blessings that are being described? And you notice what Jesus says. This time he gives a metaphor as his answer. In verse 3, he says, Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 5, he says, Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says, You must be born again. Now, I don't know, Nicodemus must have failed freshman English, or maybe he read too many of those Amelia Bedelia books, because he is just way too literal here. Jesus says, how, how, how do you get in? You must be born again. He's like, how can you do that? How can a man be born when he's old? I can't enter my mother's womb a second time. But of course, Jesus is speaking figuratively. He's talking about a spiritual birth. We're all born physically, one time, but we also need to be born spiritually. He's saying, if you want to get in the kingdom of God, something has to happen inside of you. You need to be born again. You need a complete transformation of your heart from the inside out. You need to have new spiritual life brought in where there was none before. The old you has to die, and you need a new you to be created. He's talking about believing the gospel. He's saying you've got to repent and believe the gospel, and you'll be born again. Now, this is how he explains to Nicodemus the way you get into the kingdom. And Jesus was a great teacher. So I don't think that that when Nicodemus came and asked, and and Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom. And then when he's talking on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you must be poor in spirit. You must mourn. You must be meek to enter the kingdom. I don't think he's giving two different answers. Right? He's a great teacher. So when he tells Nicodemus, you got to be born again to get in the kingdom... And he says in Matthew 5, you've got to be poor in spirit, be meek, be merciful to get in the kingdom. He's got to be talking about the same thing. Okay, There's different ways of talking about it. That's why I'm bringing this into our, our chapter to say, I think what summarizes this list, this characteristics of the people who get the blessing is it's one who's been born again. Flip back to Matthew 5. And you'll see how this works. If you look at these uh, Beatitudes, these descriptions of the person who gets the blessing, you see they're descriptions of someone who's been born again, who's been radically changed by God from the inside out. First of all, in verse 3, you say, uh, how do you get born again? You get poor in spirit. You acknowledge your poor in spirit. You say, I can't save myself. I need Jesus to save me. That's how you get born again. So being poor in spirit is a description of one who's born again. Well, how do you feel then once you've been born again? You mourn. You mourn over your sin. You mourn over uh, what you used to do. You, you used to delight in sin. You used to enjoy your old way of life, but now you hate it. You mourn that you even did such things. Mourning is a characteristic of one who's been born again. What's an attitude of a person who's been born again? You're meek. You renounce the worldly pursuit of power, and you seek to imitate Jesus, serving and loving others that way. That's a characteristic of being born again. You keep on going. You see, when you've been born again, you get new desires. 
So you don't hunger and thirst for pleasure anymore. You don't hunger and thirst for approval. You don't hunger and thirst for uh, you know, uh, worldly power and wealth. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you're born again, you show mercy because you receive such mercy. When you're born again, you make peace with others because God has made peace with you. And if you live like this, you will be persecuted because the born-again Christian is radically different from those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. The world doesn't understand you, and so they will persecute you. So how do you get these blessings that are promised by Jesus? The answer is you must be born again. Now, what's that, what does that mean for us? If we understand these, these blessings this way. I think that's the important truth we've got to grasp right here and continue to hold on to for our entire journey throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that this is not, this is not a list of eight things that you have to do to earn God's blessing. That's not what this is. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not starting out his sermon by saying, if you want my blessing, here are the eight things that you must do. If you don't do this, you can't get in. He's not giving a list that we need to accomplish and check off before we can get in his kingdom. He's giving a list of the blessings that you get once you've put your faith in Jesus. That's it. He's saying this whole thing, it's not a performance trap. It's a description of the life that waits for you if you put your faith in Jesus, get born again from the inside out. See, when we look at this list, we're supposed to be humbled. I mean, the whole Sermon on the Mount, any of the, the law of God, we look at it and we're supposed to be humble and say, I can't do this. And we turn to Jesus and we say, please give me a new heart. Please fill me with your righteousness. I want to be born again. And when you're born again by faith in Jesus, these blessings are yours. They're already yours. They're not things that you still have to earn by, by doing these additional acts, but they're yours. They're all yours. So there's one blessing. The blessing is a right relationship with God and everything that entails. Those who get the blessing are those who have been born again by faith in Jesus. And when you're born again, your life changes to look like this list. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? I've got two applications. The first application would be to use these blessings as what I call a fruit test. A fruit test. What are you talking about? Well, at the end of this sermon in Matthew 7, uh, Jesus takes a lot of time to lay out two camps. Okay, he says there's two kinds of people in the world. There's those who are in my kingdom and those who aren't. And he gives us four different illustrations to make that clear. One of them is this picture of fruit. So in, in Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Here's this principle that you'll recognize people by their, by their fruits. So if you're truly born again, He's saying there's going to be evidence of that in your life. If a tree, for example, is healthy, 
it's going to bear fruit. It's a fruit tree, of course. If a fruit tree is healthy, it's going to bear fruit. If it's not healthy, it won't. So when you look at a tree, you can tell by looking at it whether it's a healthy tree or, or not a healthy tree. Because the fruit is the outward visible sign of the invisible reality of the health of the tree. In the same way, Jesus is saying these attributes he's laying out for us at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount are pictures of fruit. The fruit are things like being poor in spirit, of mourning, being meek, longing for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker, being persecuted. These things are the fruit. They're the visible sign of the invisible inward reality of whether or not you've been truly born again. So one of the functions of this list is as a test. Say, look at yourself. Do you see these qualities in your life to some degree? Now, we're not saying you have to have a bumper crop. You have to be the most merciful person ever. But but is it there? Is there the reality of a changed heart bearing fruit in your life such that you look in some degree like the qualities in this list? Let me give you an example. A couple weeks ago, I was talking with some friends. And they told a story about a woman in their church who refused to sing Amazing Grace. They refused to sing Amazing Grace because she did not believe that she was a wretch. You know the song, Amazing Grace. So, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And, and this woman, and I don't know her at all, but, but as the story was related to me, refused to sing Amazing Grace because she would not admit that she was a wretch. I didn't need that song because that's, that's not me. Now, I don't know her, I don't know her heart, I don't know the circumstances, but if I were her pastor, I would say to her, um, I don't know, what would I say? I would warn her. I would say, that's not a good sign. You know, at the very least, it's not a good sign that you cannot admit that you're a wretch. Because what it sounds like is that you're not poor in spirit. It sounds like you're coming to Jesus and you're saying, I've got this figured out. I'm righteous on my own. I don't really need a lot of help. But Jesus says the, the, the primary criteria for entering the kingdom is to be born spirit, to admit that you are a wretch. I mean, that's why we love that song. It nails the gospel. <laughs> Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We come with nothing. We have, even the, the person who looks so put together on the outside, we have nothing to offer. And God comes and he saves us by his free grace. So if if you're unable to see yourself as a wretch, part of the function of the Sermon on the Mount is to to show you maybe you haven't really been born again. In the same way, if you're consistently arrogant and bitter, unforgiving, unmerciful, always causing fights instead of ending fights. You know, if, if, you, if you look in this list and you see that none of that fruit is there even in a little bit, that's a bad sign. But what you need to do when your tree doesn't have fruit, what you need to do is not go to the store, buy a bunch of apples and thyme on the branches. Okay, that could be our tendency. Say, okay, my, my tree doesn't have any fruit. I'll fix that. I'll go to the store, buy a bunch of apples, thyme on the branches. Look, healthy tree. No, uh, it's just a dead tree with apples tied on. Um, but we do that sometimes. We, we, we hear this, we think, oh no, I, do, I don't show mercy. I'm not a peacemaker. So I'm going to go out, find somebody who's having a fight, and I'm going to make them you know, get along. And now I've been a peacemaker, so I'm going to see God. 
And that's not the point. The point is, if the fruit's not there, go to the heart. Don't try to paste some fruit on the outside. Go to the heart. Say, have I been born again? And if, you, if you're born again, then you will make peace. If you're born again, you will show mercy. You will be meek. Fix the root. So this is not a call to try hard to be a better person. It's a call to look at our hearts, to admit that we're not good people, to ask for a good heart and get born again. That's one function of this list. But it's not the primary function. I don't think that's mainly why Jesus was giving us this. I think the primary function is encouragement, that this list is meant to be a source of joy. Let's just face it, life can be very hard. It can be doubly hard for someone who's trying to follow Jesus. Look at the list. Look at, what, look at the disciple he describes. You're poor, you mourn, you're meek, you hunger and thirst. You have to be merciful instead of taking revenge. You've got to be pure in heart. You're making peace, getting involved in other people's problems, uh, and you're going to get persecuted for it. All right? That doesn't sound like the good life on the surface. So why does Jesus give us this list? He's giving us this list to show us that even though life can be hard and doubly hard for a Christian, it's worth it. Because he says, in the end, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will be satisfied. You will be shown mercy. You will see God. You will be called a son or a daughter of God. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. This is the good life. See, God is offering us a life of unsurpassed blessing through faith in Jesus. So if you have been born again, your application is this. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these blessings, these blessings that you shower on us. We experience them in a little bit now, and it's good. It is good to know you. It's good to be receiving mercy from you. Uh, it's good to give, get blessing from you. Uh, but how much more in the future do these blessings wait for us to so strengthen us for the journey? Give us renewed hearts and bear this fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.